Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your uh, host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Corey Cook, Jackie Kettler, and Jen Snyder working the boards over there. Um, we're all uh, my fellow colleagues from the School of Public Service. Corey makes me say that, so I'm just working that in. Uh, so we got a, a, a big show today, lots of things to talk about. Uh, luckily, no election talk, because um, I think we're all pretty tired of that, right? I'm ready for it to be done. Uh, so I think the, the first big story uh, is to talk about our, our first lady, Melania Trump. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly, first of all? <laughs> Good job. All right, because I pronounced it uh, wrong like four times in the hallway, and I had to be corrected. Uh, so, all right, first of all, Melania Trump. So uh, she's been in the news this, this week, uh, which is interesting because she is rarely in the news, uh, rarely issues uh, public statements. Um, but this is the public statement that she released on Tuesday. Uh, it is the position of the office of the first lady that she, uh, she in this case being uh, Mira uh, Ricardell, a national security st- staffer, uh, to go back, it is the position of the office of the first lady that she no longer deserves the honor of serving in this White House, which is pretty shocking um, for you know a first lady that's fairly quiet, fairly outside the public limelight uh, to issue that statement. Um, yeah, and so I was just what what is uh what are y'all's reads on this situation? Like, what did you pull from it? Yeah, it was a little surprising. Not what I expected. I mean, there's always surprising news lately, right? But um, yeah, I mean, Melania Trump's, uh, you know, the office of the first lady has been a bit less active than what we've seen before. I know at first just planning events and things didn't roll quite how it has in the past. She has fewer people on staff than previous first ladies. So a little bit different um, approach. And so, yeah, to see kind of this news that she was, her office was trying to push this other person in the administration out well, it was a little surprising. I'm mean, trying to push her out in a very public way, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's about as public as you can get. I mean, this was um, an official statement from the from the East Wing of the White House. Um, it's it's fairly remarkable. If uh, you might recall, back in the '90s when uh, the Clintons and and then uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton was involved in firing the White House Travel Office. It was a massive scandal at the time that the First Lady of the United States would get involved in personnel decisions. Uh, we've come a long way, obviously. This is a national security staff position. I mean, this is not an insignificant uh, staffer. This is somebody who uh, was, was high up in the national security apparatus. And, and again, this is a a significant role for the first lady to to, to take on. Yeah, and uh, speaking of travel, I think part of the conflict uh, came from that. Right, was that the national the uh, the national security staffer uh, had basically complained about some travel plans, um, threw some wrenches in some things, um, complained about hotel arrangements, these other type of things, and basically it just kind of drew the ur of uh, the first lady, which is again interesting because this first lady isn't somebody who's really been that involved in the White House. For the most part, it seems that she is tried to keep her distance, um, not even moving to Washington uh, after the inauguration, staying in New York. Um, Basically, I mean, again, keeping the White House at at an arm's length for the most part. I mean, I saw in the newspaper today, too, that it it looked as if uh, Trump himself was sort of surprised that she made the announcement. In other words, that wasn't coordinated. Have you heard anything about that? 
No, I, I haven't. But there have been times where it seems like uh, the the president's office is caught off guard by something the first lady's office does, which is kind of entertaining a little bit as an observer. Well, surprising because the Trump White House is otherwise so disciplined and organized <laughs> that you wouldn't expect this lack of coordination. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, a lot different than previous first ladies, uh, correct? I'm, I'm looking at the political scientists in the room on this one. Um, certainly we've had a lot of activist first ladies uh, when we look at Michelle Obama um, and Hillary Clinton, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, Laura Bush and Barbara Bush. I mean, what, what's your opinion on um, Melania's role or Melania's role? <laughs> Man, I'm just killing the pronunciation today. <laughs> Melania's That's role. That's the next wife. Yeah, I mean, oh. there is there is some variation in first ladies on their focuses. So someone like Laura Bush was not near as politically involved as Hillary Clinton, but she was quite active in the social outreach, the the uh, nonprofit type stuff. Reading was a big thing for her. So there was still a lot of public engagement, even though they weren't politically engaged, where we have we just have seen a less active for uh, office of the first lady with uh, Melania Trump. And frankly, for the most part, the media is only focused on her fashion choices, right? So they were critical of her choices when she was uh, overseas. They were critical of the jacket that she wore while, while, um, while traveling in the United States. Um, she's pushed back saying she wished that there was a focus on something other than her wardrobe. There is now. I mean, she has tried to um, do what other first ladies have done with her anti-bullying campaign. Um, it doesn't seem to have really taken off, probably because of the dissonance with maybe some of the rhetoric coming out of the White House. Um, but sort of, uh, it seems to me her spokespeople sort of fall back to say that her real focus right now is her son, Baron, um, which I think is not that other first ladies haven't been focused on their kids, but that does seem to be something that she, she spends a lot of time on. Yeah, and she was also perhaps less um, engaged politically before coming to the White House, right? Like, this ha- wasn't a focus for her. It didn't really seem like she was especially enthusiastic about the role in some ways at the start. And so that may have also kind of contributed to some of the slow start of her office in these regards. Yeah, that's a good point. They're not a political family. Yeah. Well, no, and I think it's an interesting conversation for us to have uh, because typically we don't talk enough about the First Lady, but it's definitely been uh, a different experience in the White House all around for the Trump administration. I think this is just another facet uh, of it, of looking how his um, family plugs into this. And so, I mean, uh, certainly when you look at his kids, they play very active roles, but now you look at his wife there um, who's not playing a very active role. So I think it's definitely a change of pace for the things that we've seen out of our last several presidents, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, but every family is going to be a little bit different with their different dynamics. But it's definitely been with grown children playing a bigger role rather than the first lady's office, which has been kind of interesting to watch. And if Vanity Fair's reporting is to be reported, about to play a very significant role in the the Mueller investigation. Interesting. I've not heard that aspect, but I'm going to Google it as soon as the show's over. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a a quick break. You're uh, listening to The Big Ten on Radio Boise. I'm Jason from the band Terror Pigeon, and you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Hey! You are amazing, and there is no one else that does what you do. Billy's gonna play now. You're back on uh, the Big Ten on Radio Boise. Um, I'm your host, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Corey, Jackie, and Jen. And 
We uh, spent the uh, first segment talking about the first lady, but now we're going to take a change of pace and talk about the other big story this week, Amazon uh, headquarters number two. Uh, and for those who haven't been following this in the news, it's it's been a saga that's been going on for months uh, as Amazon has essentially solicited uh, bids from, I mean, every city in North America. I believe uh, Boise even uh, submitted a uh, an application that they didn't meet most of the criteria um, just to try to get on Amazon's radar. Um, and so it's come down to a, a series of finalists that they announced a couple months ago and then uh, this week they announced that they're basically going to split their next headquarters between two cities um washington or arlington uh arlington virginia right outside of washington dc and then uh new york city um so it's been uh, pretty interesting because the news of coming out of what these cities were offering as part of their their proposals right and so uh in this um let's see in kind of a, a summation here uh, New York offered them $1.5 billion in incentives. Uh, Arlington offered them $600 million. Um, their promise is to spend about $5 billion in total on the projects of building the new, or creating 25,000 jobs in each place with an average salary of $150,000. So we're talking about big dollars, big, um, I mean, draws. Like These are high-paying jobs. These are lots of building. There's a lot going on. I mean, you can, you can see why c- cities were following o- all over themselves to try to bring this in. And Washington in New York were the big winners here. So, uh, what was y'all's read on this situation? Were, were you surprised by the choices? I mean, I hadn't followed it that closely since that initial round of applications a while ago. So then when I was reading something in the paper, I'm like, D.C.? I didn't even know D.C. was part of this conversation. (laughs) So I had kind of stopped following the story. Um, It is interesting, you know, as opposed to cities that are kind of up and coming, like places like Denver, where I had heard something, you know, some more recently, is more kind of these established larger cities. And so it's kind of an interesting different move than like their headquarters in Seattle. And there's some research on looking at um, sort of uh, dispersion of, of, of technology companies. And um, these are the usual suspects actually. So sort of Silicon Valley, Seattle, um, tech giants moving to New York and DC is sort of what happens. So there are these emerging sort of Markets like 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 Denver, sort of second tier tech centers that are that we're seeing in smaller cities. This was actually very traditional and very much how uh, tech is dispersed around the country, sort of in phase one. So, I think the I, I think a lot of folks who study cities were expecting a wrinkle and didn't get one. This is sort of yeah exactly where you would expect. them to land actually. I do think it's interesting to see as tech firms and tech companies get more involved in DC right because at first they were kind of hesitant to be involved in national politics and then suddenly realized oh wait we need to be involved and just dove in with tons of money on lobbying now they're going to be in the area for Amazon so I do think that's kind of an interesting element. Well and I the Washington thing really didn't surprise because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and his second home is there. So, uh, it, Crystal City has plenty of office space and is, you know, obviously a close, easy commute to, to the corridors of political power. Yeah. Um, certainly, uh, what was most interesting to me was some of the reporting that came out about what cities were offering. Um, of course, like $1.5 billion in incentives to build a company. Like, that seems outrageous, but I mean, I guess it's in par with the size of this project. Uh, 
I think one of my it, the most interesting uh, proposals came out of Atlanta to me. Um, of course, hundreds of millions of dollars in incentives. They also also offered uh, to add a MARTA cart, which would be their uh, like subway train system, to deliver Amazon packages throughout the cities. They offered a private Amazon lounge in Jackson Hartsfield Airport, which for many of y'all know that Atlanta is the busiest commercial traffic airport in the, the country and part of the world. So, I mean, there's going to be a special Amazon lounge. Uh, and they also offered uh, to partner with the University System of Georgia to essentially create Amazon U, which was going to do specific Amazon-focused educational and training programs. So, uh, I, you know, I found that very interesting how far that the city government and really the state of Georgia, because this was a partnership between both Atlanta and Georgia, the, the state, were willing to intertwine what they were doing to try to bring in this this company. Were, were y'all surprised about any of the benefits that were being handed out? My favorite was Columbus, Ohio. So they offered to work with Amazon to lower the astonishing murder rate, <laughs> which, which I thought was oh, no. quite the selling point. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just going a little too far because, I mean, if you're going to go to Columbus, oh, is, isn't it for the murder rate? <laughs> oh, jeez. That's, uh, wow. wow. <laughs> I, that's, I'm not sure that's a selling point. No. <laughs> I mean, what, what I thought was interesting was that so many cities and their governments had to sign NDAs so that um, the information wouldn't come out about what they promised. So there was some interesting discussion about whether or not it was uh, in, in the reporting on this uh, announcement about whether or not it was positive for governments to show that they were really willing to work with big business or whether or not they wanted to keep that secret um, so that they didn't weren't seen as sort of like giving away the farm. Well, and I wonder how much of this is going to blow back on them when it comes to the next developer, the next, you know, oh, wait, you gave Amazon, you offered Amazon a billion dollars. I would like my billion dollars to build a, a company here. Well, and I think that's a question that comes up a lot of times with trying to appeal, you know, bring in new businesses or keep like sports teams in your city, like how, like the cost benefits, right? Like, yes, economic development's important, but is it worth what you're giving them? Will there even be much of a benefit? Um, I think these are some debates that end up happening within communities. Well, it really, I think, points to various economic development strategies. So, I mean, this that, to me, I, I thought a lot about the sort of the the innovation e- ecosystem that that a lot of uh, local cities are trying to develop, and the importance of that in the content. It's far more expensive to recruit an Amazon. HQ 2.0 than it is to actually invest in an indigenous tech sector that will grow and 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 live in your jurisdiction. And so the challenge with economic development is always this push and pull between do we grow our own and try to nurture business activity or do we try to uh, essentially it's the old industrial recruitment model, right? States competing for um, for Ford. Um, uh, uh, factory plants for, 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 for generation, right? So it's that same model come to the tech sector. I think a lot of jurisdictions have to be looking at what the packages they put together and said, what, what could we do with a couple billion dollars invested in our infrastructure in our cities, in our community colleges and our universities that would create an ecosystem that would actually produce this sort of economic growth in place rather than trying to pull it from somewhere else. Yeah, and this is, uh, I mean, a very unique opportunity. I mean, it's very, I mean, it's rare for the largest company or like one of the largest companies in the world to say, oh, we're going to build a second headquarters. Who wants it, right? Uh, and so this is just kind of outrageous. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Jen, was t- from Toronto, who basically said, <laughs> we're not going to offer any incentives because we don't feel like we need to play that game. And Canada. I was just like, how did it turn out? 
Yeah, they didn't, they didn't get it. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That didn't, that didn't work that out with them. Awesome. I, I just thought that was very interesting when they go, look, we're just Toronto. Just come here. And that, like, right. It would have been amazing. You're nicer than everybody else. I, I mean, I wish Amazon would have picked them because that would have just been such an amazing signal to send the world. <laughs> be like, no, you don't have to do this. <laughs> and yet somehow they chose the incentives instead. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have to take another break uh, fairly quickly. So uh, you're listening to the Big Ten on Radio Boise. Hello, we're the Mystery Lights. I'm Kevin. I'm Zach. You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Community radio for Boise and beyond. We're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise. Um, and so we've been talking about some diverse things today, starting with the uh, First Lady and then Amazon headquarters. Uh, but we're going to uh, change gears today. And uh, since Jen is working the boards, I'm going to talk about college football. Oh. And there's nothing she can do about it. Um, never actually, forget she can it. cut your mic. I'm pretty sure there's something she can do. Uh, Jen would have to know how to cut mics, so, and I just don't believe that she has that level Touché. of tech skill. Uh, so, first of all, uh, for our listeners out there who might not be football savvy, i.e. Jen, uh, so we're, we're getting close to the end of the season. College football playoff rankings are, are coming uh, about. Um, we're getting, uh, getting close to the end. Unfortunately, all your hosts and co-host teams are out of it. Um, I don't... I don't believe uh, any of us are in danger, including Boise State, of winning the national championship, unfortunately. But uh, Boise State is now in the college football or bowl, the bowl rankings yes. again. So that win on Friday night over Fresno State definitely was helpful there for Boise State's season. Uh, but to uh, at least make this somewhat related to public affairs, um, which is not too difficult, uh, but Boys, college football is a huge moneymaker, um, and it's connected to the universities, and technically these are supposed to be public entities. Um, I think, uh, and I'm sure anybody who plays on the internet enough has seen the studies that basically indicate that, you know, out of 46, 48 states, the highest paid public employee is the head football coach. Um, and that is the same here. Brian Harson makes about $1.4 million a year, and we're currently negotiating his con- or renegotiating his contract, um, maybe giving him a raise. Uh and so uh, the question always comes back to, like, should we be paying these people this much money, right? Uh, and so I, I printed out some statistics here because I didn't think Jen would believe me on any of this. Uh, but when you look at a lot of these programs. Statistics. Data, financial data. But when you look at some of this stuff, um, and what stuck out to me is, uh, and this came from um, USA Today Sports, was how many of these programs, particularly these big national programs, don't actually get state allocations for the funding. And that is to say that they ought, might be $100 and $200 million enterprises that are paying for all these things, but they're not funded by uh, public dollars. They're funded by their revenues from ticket sales, from selling merchandise, from their media contracts. Um, their football coaches that make these multi-million dollar salaries, people like Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M, who signed a $75 million 10-year contract, Texas A&M, is complete, their football program is completely funded on their own revenue. So they get no money from the state. So the question is, like, where are the lines being drawn here? Because if you think about the states paying these people, it's kind of dirty, but it turns out they're not really paying that much. What's your opinions on this? Well, I mean, I think... It makes sense for these programs to want to move to private money, right? Because it comes with fewer restrictions or concerns. They can also fundraise all they want, right? As opposed to needing to go through the state for approval for some different things. Well, it's it's fairly remarkable, the impact of college athletics and academia, right? And so from my perspective, the the provost and the president are probably the two most important people that I work with regularly. Probably third is a football coach. 
the reality at Boise State is our enrollments go up and the football team does well. And for tuition-driven institutions, there's a fundamental reality which is somewhat problematic. That is, um, when, when Boise State's football team is successful, we will see a bump in, in um, uh, students that are they're, they're, uh, trying to um, enroll in the university. And so there is this push and pull between, I think, some universities that have done it very well. I think Boise State's university, frankly, has done it very well, where they have leveraged their acad- athletic successes into academic successes, which have then propelled the football team to being able to market itself in new areas of the country um, and potentially move up in, in terms of the division that it competes in. Uh, other universities, I think, have become academic shells of themselves, as they effectively turned over the academic side to the sports program. I mean, that's something I've worried about is um, it does it open the door for influence peddling, right? So I worry less about who's paying the salaries and more about when these teams become such juggernauts at a university, does it open up the potential for them to exert undue influence on things like curriculum and how athletes are treated and um, admissions admissions. and student conduct issues and Title IX and all these other uh, concerns that I think higher education rightly has. And so can universities leverage these massive investments uh, in the, essentially the front door of the university, how it engages its alumni around college athletics in a way that benefits the core mission of the university, which is educating students and advancing, advancing knowledge. And uh, again, as you go down the list of the, the top top programs, I think there's several on that list that you would point to and say, you know, the University of Alabama made what I would consider an insane investment in its football program, but the academic side has actually grown remarkably in the last decade as a result of increased attention, revenue, uh, student applications, et cetera. They've actually really invested in the, acad- in the academic side. Other universities on that list, and I won't necessarily call any of them out, I would argue have hollowed out their university in a, in a narrow and, and um, unprincipled pursuit of, of athletic glory. Yeah, no, uh, I think the University of Alabama is a, a great uh, example because I think most of us uh, are familiar with what Nick Saban, the type of success he's generated there. But when you look at the explosion uh, and the size of that school and how many uh, applications they get every year, because where people might not have ever heard of them before now they can't get away from that name uh, and so uh, several years ago and for our listeners who don't know I'm a Mississippi State grad and so when the first college football playoff poll came out Mississippi State was named ranked number one in the country for five weeks and during that time freshman applications actually uh, increased by 40 percent alumni donations increased um, there was tons of money and attention that were coming to that school that were never would have never happened before and so it ended up being a, a, a pretty good thing for the, uh, the school but but I think, Corey, you're absolutely right in saying that some schools have sold out. Um, uh, I will uh, stoop to calling out one of our uh, uh, another institution in Ohio State and the story of the Urban Meyer that are still going on or ongoing. Um, and a lot of people have accused them of basically selling out their morals and their principles because Urban Meyer is one of the best college football coaches in the country. Um, and so those are not the headlines that you want. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a very difficult line for a, a lot of schools to, to walk when you're talking about, I mean, at Boise State, uh, this is a college of athletics is a $50 million a year endeavor. Um, at the University of Alabama, it's a $200 million a year enterprise. I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, and if it's not managed right, it can be very difficult. 
Well, sure. I mean, there's definitely pl- plenty of room for issues to arise, right? I grew up in Kansas, a KU basketball fan, and, and you know, we've got these major cases going through with Adidas and, and paying to, you know, bring players to colleges and some, some really concerning things happening in some of those elements. But yeah, for a place like Boise State, I mean, there's a lot of that upward tra- trajectory in terms of grant money and, att- you know, not attracting faculty in addition to, to students that have that natural national football brand has helped bring. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest here, and the reason that I clicked on the job ad for the position I have at Boise State is because I follow the football program. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know what that is. And I clicked on it, I was like, oh, this job sounds good for me, right? And so, I mean, other work. Yeah. Where else will you be able to write scholarly papers on blue turf yeah and i just you know to be honest that has been the university of montana or montana state or something else that i was just not as familiar with i might not even read the job ad to begin with well and i don't think anybody's taking issue with leveraging the reputation of the team right it's when you cross over into mismanagement and uh allowing any one part of the university to exert too much control over the institution as a whole that you see problems well in the high profile examples right whether it's you know michigan state ohio state penn state i think folks know about. I think it's, it's universities, and I, so I guess we're going we're gonna to get personal. Uh, University of Oregon is one that I would argue its academic quality has declined at the same time its investment in sports has increased. And um, to me, that's an interesting, it's, it's not a case of a c- coach who had r- literally run afoul of the law and gain more power than than the university president and board of trustees. This is a university that just simply lost sight of what its core values were. Um, and, and again, I don't want to, if any of our listeners are University of Oregon graduates, I apologize. But I think the research is pretty clear that Oregon is declining in terms of its rigor and quality and its reputation as an academic institution at the same time. They've invested an immense amount in an athletics program. And so they seem to have missed misjudge the degree to which increasing investments in athletics can actually promote the core, the core mission of the institution. Well, there was a, uh, I don't want to call it an expose, but there's essentially an in-depth uh, examination of what was going on at the University of Oregon of, uh, not too long ago in the Chronicle of Higher Education, but essentially made the exact same argument, which was that the to boost undergraduate enrollment and all these other things that the university administrators decided to invest in that college experience, which included a lot Climbing of athletics. Walls and all kinds of and, and at the Yeah, it was all of these things at the same time, ignoring their graduate programs, ignoring their faculty, and it just hollowed out the academic part of this to focus on an experience of college that was more about fun and winning football games than it was about teaching and educating. So, I mean, I, I think there's definitely some good models that we can point to, but there's also Boise some... Boise State beat Oregon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, on that Ooh. note. <laughs> yes. So that's a great way to wrap up the show today. Uh, this has uh, been the Big Tent on Radio Boise. Um, I'm your host, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Corey Cook, Jackie Kettler, and Jen Schneider, all of the School of Public Service at Boise State. Um, we are Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise.